Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst with the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. And we're episode, this is 100, mm, actually, I don't even remember what episode number it is. I never remember what episode number, but it's 110 something. So we're not a new podcast anymore, but for those of you just tuning in for the first time, uh, what we do here on this podcast on illiteracy is I invite an author on. Uh, to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published and have a conversation about it and, um, you know, on a subject or topic or person that uh, we think you guys out there would find interesting. So, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, you like the book and you like the discussion and, you know, in the middle of the podcast or at the end of the podcast, you go ahead and uh, uh, give the book a purchase yourself and give it a read. So, yeah, if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Mr. James Rosen. And Mr. Rosen is the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax and a leading reporter, historian, and best-selling author. And prior to Newsmax, he spent two decades doing acclaimed reporting at Fox News. And you may have seen his writing in many places, like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Harper's, Politico, The Atlantic, and uh, best of all, National Review, among others. And uh, his books include The Strong Man, John Mitchell, and The Secrets of Watergate, and Cheney One-on-One, A Candid Conversation with America's Most Controversial Statesman. And he also edited a volume of William F. William F. Buckley Jr.'s Eulogies, a torch kept lit, great lives of the 20th century. And lastly, he is the author of Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, the first in a two-volume biography of the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, which was published uh, in March by Regnery, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Mr. Rosen, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. I'm grateful to you for having me. Oh, no problem. Okay, so... First things first, before we get to the book itself, uh, I wanted to ask you about the acknowledgments section, uh, which I make a habit of reading before I read the book itself. It's just something I've always done. I'm very weird that way. But anyway, so in this... I bi- think it's probably a fairly <laughs> common practice amongst real, true lovers of books. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. I appreciate that compliment. <laughs> but anyway, so in this biography of Antonin Scalia, famous... Uh, Supreme Court Justice, uh, conservative hero, you listed uh, your thanks to Connie and Chris Hillman, uh, which took me aback. Uh, for those of you who don't know who that is, and I assume that this is who this is, uh, Chris Hillman uh, was a member of the Birds, the famous rock and roll group in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, probably the maybe the most important American rock group of all time, and he was also in the, the Flying Breeder Brothers and Manassas with Stephen Stills and the Desert Rose Band, et cetera, et cetera, a very famous, prolific musician. And then Connie Hillman, uh, or Connie Pappas Hillman, uh, is his wife and a very well-known music executive in her own right, you know, worked with uh, Elton John for decades. And uh, But the thing that uh, struck me with that is that uh, Chris Hillman is a previous guest on this podcast for when his oh. memoir came out, uh, Time Between, 
and uh, his wife Connie is the one I arranged the interview with. Uh, yes. So I know you're a music guy, or at least, or at least a Beatles guy. Uh, <laughs> but but why exactly are the Hillmans thanked in a uh, a book about Antonin Scalia? <laughs> this has to be not only my favorite <laughs> opening question of all. The- I've done to promote this book. I've done probably 50 or 60 radio and podcast hits to promote this book, but probably my favorite question period of all time. Uh, the fact that you led with it is special. Um, so uh, the acknowledgement section um, I used to thank uh, folks not only who helped in some direct way with the production of this book, of which there are a legion, uh, but just people who were kind to me uh, mm-hmm. in what has been a challenging period for me in recent times and in the uh, dur- during which time I was putting together this book and uh i got to know chris hillman gosh maybe 10 years ago uh through an appearance he did on the laura ingram radio show where i was also a guest then we went to breakfast with 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 connie and then i've seen him every time he comes out east to to perform either at the birchmere or uh another uh, any of those local sort of places in the washington dc area and i was very tickled uh to be able to attend with my wife uh, the concert that he gave uh, with uh, Roger McGuinn, mm-hmm. um, for which was a recreation of the Sweetheart of the Rodeo Birds album right. uh, at the Strathmore. And we were seated in the very front row. We got to hang out with them backstage beforehand. And gosh, the harmonies between Hillman and McGuinn, mm. um, it's as if you stepped back in time. They nailed it. It was like watching something you just knew you weren't supposed to be able to watch it in the in the 21st century, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they've been good friends to Sarah and me. And in fact, one of those performances at the Birchmere, he dedicated Bells of Rimney to my wife. Oh, and that was nice. so special very, very for nice. us. Yeah. So we're big fans of the birds. Uh, we're all, we also, in the same period of time, got to be friendly with Graham Nash. Um, yeah, I noticed met... he was in the acknowledgments too. And Brian Wilson. <laughs> uh, so different Brian Wilson. Now, oh, different Brian we, Wilson? Yeah, we all have right. to range out of music uh, to um, <laughs> the... Uh, the talk radio DJ in Nashville, who was formerly uh, my office mate at Fox News for about eight years. Okay. Big, tall Texan named Brian Wilson. Yeah. So. And a great guy. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, it was a uh, it was just very weird, you know, coming across that. I kind of did like a double take on the page. I was like, Connie and Chris Hillman, Connie and Chris Hillman. I was like, uh, I, I admire <laughs> your diligence. See, this is someone who's reading closely every printed word in the book and that's a great tribute for the author so well yeah i mean you know if you're gonna take the time to come on the show i'm gonna take the time to make sure i read the book and you know pay attention to it and uh give it a a a fair shot and everything so uh but anyway enough of that uh off-topic stuff so to the book itself um so what was the genesis of this uh project what made you want to write this this biography of Antonin Scalia and and tell his story. So, Tim, this, this book, uh, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, uh, just published by Regnery, captures the first 50 years of Antonin Scalia's life. It ends with him taking his seat on the Supreme Court. And so I hope, in, if not before then, that I'll be speaking with you in about two plus years uh, about the second and final volume of the biography. <laughs> it's a date. Uh, which will which will cover uh, Justice Scalia's tenure on the Supreme Court from 1986 to 2016 when he died. Um, I had the privilege of knowing Justice Scalia a little bit. Uh, One of the first things I did when I came to Washington in 1999 uh, as a young Washington correspondent at the beginning of my Beltway career 
was to write a letter to Justice Scalia seeking an interview. And the reason I did that was because many years earlier still, back in the 80s when I was in high school, um, I saw him on a PBS program called The Constitution, That Delicate Balance, which was moderated by a former uh, president of CBS News, Fred Friendly, and which featured eminent minds of the time uh, seated in a kind of theater-in-the-round setting before a live studio audience and, and tackling tricky hypothetical situations. And so you would see seated beside each other people like Dan Rather, Gerald Ford, Sandra Day O'Connor, Antonin <laughs> Scalia. And Scalia just struck me immediately as fundamentally different from everybody else on these, uh, on these panel programs. Um, he spoke in a way that uh, anyone, not just lawyers, could understand. And that's a hallmark of his opinions. And it's also what I tried to accomplish in this book. To, anyone can read this book. It's not just for lawyers. And I predict that anyone who buys the book uh, will find themselves at different times due to Scalia's personality just cracking up out loud. Um, and he was not afraid to be humorous and sometimes sarcastic. And so I, many years later, come to Washington. I write him a letter seeking an interview. And I didn't get it. But this commenced between us an unusual and sometimes rather amusing correspondence that went on for two years, excerpts of which I hope to publish in the second volume. Uh, and it also led to a pair of lunches between us, one-on-one -on -one each time, just the two of us, uh, off the record, where we drank wine together. Uh, the justice made me eat off of his plate. I said, Mr. Justice, I couldn't. He says, come on, come on, come on. So now I'm shoveling vegetables from Justice Scalia's plate into my mouth. Um, <laughs> And he even uh, drove me back to my office both times in his car. And I've been able to confirm uh, through my research, Tim, uh, with classmates who traveled with Scalia for debate tournaments all the way back in the 1950s up through Supreme Court clerks in the 21st century that being a passenger in a car driven by Antonin Scalia was as unnerving an experience for them as it was for me. Uh, so he was very generous to a young reporter some 25 years ago. And I resolved at that time that someday I would write about him. What I found when I finally set to work on this book uh, the year after his death, 2017, was that there were two existing biographies of Antonin Scalia in print. And one of them, uh, both of them were published in his lifetime. One of them he cooperated with extensively, the other not at all. And they both came out in a very similar place, which is to say open in their hostility to Justice mm. Scalia, his legacy and his jurisprudence. So I like to say that this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, um, is the first book published about him since his death. It makes use of a vast array of documentary and personal sources that were either overlooked by or unavailable to the previous hostile biographers. Uh, and I like to say that it's the first accurate biography of Antonin Scalia because it is the first admiring one. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, back to his driving, I'm always kind of interested in. Was he like a like a uh, like a fast driver? Does he was he like an aggressive driver, or was he just uh, <laughs> sort of like an absent-minded driver? Because I'm always interested in in people who are uh, <laughs> sort of aggressive in many ways, but not at driving. Let's say. Okay, right? gotcha. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, um, one of his uh, classmates from Harvard Law School in the 1950s told me that they. Uh, would have to say to him, we're going to relieve you now, Nino, when he had the wheel, because he would get too interested in conversation and, and would lead to dangerous situations. Other people, and so that speaks to distracted driving. Others told me about excessive risk-taking. Uh, my own observation, being a passenger twice in his car, uh, was that there was a hint of road rage. Uh, I saw him lean on the horn. 
Uh, I saw an epithet come out of his mouth. Yeah, I mean, and I, I've learned my research. He's a tri-state that, uh, guy, though. You know, that's just yeah. Normal. That's uh, tri-state is a great way to put it. He was yeah. born in Trenton, New Jersey, but moved at the age of five to Queens, and considered himself a New Yorker. And I'm an outer borough New Yorker as well. I come from Staten Island, um, and so um, you know, I'm used to people like that. Um, that's but, just normal um, day-to-day communication when you're on the road. And, <laughs> On the but Jersey Turnpike he, or the you know the Van Wick or something like that, <laughs> or the Throgs Neck. <laughs> right. <laughs> he, let's just say he he delivered me safely from point A to point B each time. Very nice. All right. So when you were actually physically writing the book, um, did you have him in the back of your mind as a as a proofreader or like an editor? Were you like writing sentences and sitting there being like? Uh, he probably wouldn't like how the way I worded this. Let me go back and like you know uh, redo it because he's sort of famously known for his uh, deafness, uh, deftness with uh, the English language and his uh, um, his colleagues and students uh, uh, have long sort of regaled people about his uh, <laughs> his grading or his commenting on their. Uh, mm-hmm. papers or uh, decisions and or uh, uh, things things of that nature so did did you have that in the back of your mind that like oh I better write this so that you know if he were actually sitting here reading it he wouldn't be you know taking his uh, red pen out and you know tearing me to pieces <laughs> well so the word that Justice Scalia himself used to describe this attribute of his that you've been describing is snoot he was a snoot <laughs> uh, which is a word that means uh, that refers to somebody who's very fastidious about mm-hmm. uh, the English language, about word choice and selection, about usage. Uh, and in fact, he teamed up with a fellow snoot in Brian A. Garner, who is a, uh, a, law, a lawyer, a, a lexicographer, and the editor for many years of Black's Law Dictionary, to write the two books that they co-authored in, and which were released in 2008 and 2011. And it was snootery, if I might even coin another word, uh, <laughs> that brought them together. And to your question, yeah, um, the, the nature of the individual you're, you're, you're depicting as a biographer uh, starts – you start to internalize some of that. Mm. And so when I wrote my book about William F. Buckley Jr., I found myself almost aping as best within my <laughs> modest capabilities – Buckley's own elegant, fluid writing style, uh, and I would say that I I had in mind when I when I wrote Scalia Rise to Greatness a number of different what I call audiences of one, uh, and so for example one of them was Maureen Scalia, mm. and I'm pleased to say that um, in a number of different reviews of Scalia Rise to Greatness it's been pointed out that where Antonin Scalia is the star of the book. Maureen Scalia is the hero of the book. And this book, uh, by delving into all the different uh, areas and elements of Scalia's formative years that previous biographers tended to treat cursorily or in the most tendentious light possible, um, this book uh, devotes to specific subjects and episodes and phases and influences in Scalia's life the requisite treatment and scope and depth that they have not received until now. One of those areas, of course, is his Catholic faith, and the other is the contributions and the sacrifices mm-hmm. of Maureen Scalia, who raised the nine Scalia children, as the justice always said, with uh, very little assistance from him. As he liked to say, I took care of the Constitution, and Maureen took care of everything else. Right. Uh, and so Maureen Scalia was an audience of one for me. There were others. Uh, and I'm pleased to say that I gave a speech promoting the book recently at the Heritage Foundation in Washington for their annual judicial clerkship 
conference mm -hmm. where you have gathered uh, 50 or 60 uh, different individuals who have either served or are about to serve as clerks uh, on the federal bench. And as a surprise to me, um, uh, Maureen Scalia um, attended the event and was seated next to me for the lunch. Oh, very nice. And um, I, you know, have only spent very little time around her prior to this. And, um, you know, she told me that she finds the book beautifully written and that she has to take breaks when reading it because she's overcome with emotion, oh. uh, as she put it, in a good way. So it's very gratifying to hear that um, when you're writing for one of those, for several audiences of one, besides your larger uh, audience, lay readers, I wanted people who are not lawyers to be able to read and enjoy this book. Um, it's very gratifying to know that you succeeded in that, enter that enterprise. Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. Okay, uh, well, let's go um, back to the beginning. Why don't you tell us about his uh, family background and uh, his childhood, uh, first in Trenton, then in Queens, and um, how that's really going to uh, shape this person going forward. There are large, uh, there are large sets of documents that I was the first researcher to gain access to. Uh, that I'm very proud of. And one of the most important of them was and a secret oral history of his own life that Justice Scalia conducted with a female attorney whom he had known for many years who served as the interviewer in his Supreme Court chambers in 1992, his seventh term on the court. Uh, and this secret oral history of his life that Justice Scalia conducted in his chambers uh, remained sealed until 2018. And so I'm the first researcher to be able to make use of it. Uh, and it was useful in so many different ways. Um, but one small concrete example is that he mentions uh, in this oral history that he moved from Trenton, which he never much liked, to Queens, which he loved, when he was five years old. And the two previous biographies had each given inaccurate ages for that move. The, the first of them said that he moved when he was three, the second when he was six. So gaining access to this secret oral history that Justice Scalia conducted of his own life uh, enabled uh, this biography uh, for the first time to place an accurate date on when that move to Queens occurred. Um, and, of course, in that oral history, he spoke at great length about his parents. Scalia was very much a product of the American immigrant experience. His, his own story at the time of his confirmation to the Supreme Court in 1986 by a vote of 98 to nothing, a tiny imperfection, by the way, which bothered him well into the 25th century, um, <laughs> It was considered emblematic of the American dream, and it really was. Scalia's father came to this country in 1920 with $400 in his pocket and not speaking a word of English as an Italian immigrant from Sicily. Uh, and he made of himself uh, a renowned professor in Romance languages. Scalia's mother was herself the daughter of Italian immigrants, and she made of herself a schoolteacher. They were devout Catholics. And to his dying days, Scalia would only attend the High Latin Mass. Um, and um, from those three influences, um, his mother, the schoolteacher who venerated form and composition and the classics in her own way, his father, the Romance Languages professor, who warned in his own published writings about the perils of the original meaning of a given text being distorted by a dishonest translator or interpreter, and from the sacred foundational texts of the Catholic Church, the liturgy of the Catholic Church, young Nino Scalia emerged with a profound reverence for the original meaning of texts. And he carried this forward with him into his work as a judge uh, and as a justice on the Supreme Court. 
he was a product specifically of Jesuit education. He was the uh, valedictorian at his Jesuit high school and the valedictorian at his Jesuit uh, college. The high school Scalia attended was a very unusual hybrid institution. It was a Jesuit private school and a military academy. And Justice Scalia, it was called Xavier High School in Manhattan, and he used to like to tell audiences about how he commuted back and forth to school on the subway from Queens with his 22 rifle casually slung over his shoulder and nobody batting an eye about it. Um, I mean, well, you can kind of do that in Eric Adams, New York now, right? I mean, it's sort of <laughs> devolved back into open carry on the subway at this point. Um, as a former <laughs> New Yorker, I will eschew comment, but um, a native New Yorker. But um, there was one episode that Scalia carried forward with him among many that he spoke about for the rest of his days uh, from his uh, his tenure as as a high school student at Xavier. Uh, and this was what he called the Shakespeare principle. There was a fearsome Irish Irish Jesuit priest uh, named Father Tom Matthews who spoke with a thick Boston Irish brogue and who scared the wits out of the students, but had a profound influence on Scalia. And one day, the class was reading Hamlet, and a wise guy in the class, not Scalia, piped up with some sophomore comment about Hamlet. Scalia never forgot what happened next, and he spoke about it to students for the rest of his life. Uh, Father Matthews glared down at the offending wise guy and said, Mister, when you're reading Shakespeare, Shakespeare's not on trial, you are. <laughs> And again, it speaks to the reverence uh, with which Scalia viewed sacred texts, that the original meaning of a text was not to be monkeyed with or belittled or changed or expanded to suit some modern day sensibility. Uh, and then he went on to Georgetown University, again, where he was valedictorian uh, and spoke uh, in his address to the graduating students about the need for all of them to live uh, exemplary Catholic lives, which he and Maureen Scalia did. Yeah, it's funny how the uh, Jesuits, um, <laughs> how the reputation among Catholics uh, sort of uh, evolved. Let's evolved. Because I, my grandfather, uh, one of my grandfathers, my dad's father, um, was about six years older than uh, than Justice Scalia. When my dad was looking to apply at colleges, um, and my dad went to an all-boys Catholic high school in New Jersey, St. Joe's in Metuchen, uh, which is a Brothers of the Sacred Heart uh, school. But uh, my grandfather uh, forbid my dad uh, from attending a, a Jesuit college. And, you know, that was just uh, 20 years, you know, 20, 25 years after, after uh, Scalia uh, was uh, in high school, you know, so that's kind of funny. Well, you know, um, I interviewed Father Paul Scalia for this book. I mm -hmm. interviewed four of the nine Scalia children, not a majority in Supreme Court terms, but still I like to think impressive. And Father Paul Scalia, who is the, uh, the vicar of uh, clergy in the uh, Arlington, Virginia Archdiocese today, um, and who delivered a brilliant homily at his father's memorial service, um, he told me that the Jesuits were known back in his father's time at, in high school, the, the mid-1950s, for their rigor, for their mm -hmm. spit and polish. And uh, one of Scalia's classmates told me about the terror that they felt uh, being forced to conjugate Latin verbs within 60 seconds time under a ticking stopwatch that was uh, operated by another Jesuit priest, Father Morton Hill. 
Uh, and to uh, one of these individuals who went to high school with Scalia, who's a very important interviewee in my book, still alive, named Father Robert Connor, an Opus Dei priest, <laughs> um, who, but for an interregnum, maintained his friendship with Scalia from their boyhood days to the end of Scalia's life, uh, told me that uh, whenever he would get together with Justice Scalia, many years after their attendance at Xavier, they would hug each other, they would, they would uh, exchange pleasantries, and the first thing they would do is conjugate Latin verbs for 60 seconds under a stopwatch. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, well, uh, speaking of uh, Jesuit, college, Jesuit colleges, uh, he, uh, Scalia ends up going to uh, Georgetown for his undergraduate after he gets rejected by Princeton. Yes. And he felt his ethnicity and, and probably his religion, too. Uh, he didn't really complain about it, but he, he said it probably most likely played a role uh, in his being rejected uh, from Princeton. That's right. Now, Scalia was uh, the valedictorian of his high school class. In the photo section of Scalia Rise to Greatness, you'll find a number of previously unpublished photographs. My favorite photo in the whole photo section is his graduating photo from Xavier in 1953, where he was first in his class. He excelled at, at, at a myriad of extracurricular pursuits. He was well-liked throughout the school. He was just an A1 star in every respect. Yeah, he was immensely shows, qualified for the Ivy League. For Princeton, yeah. Yes. And this photo shows him in uniform with a chest full of ribbons and decorations with a, a winning smile. His black hair is parted perfectly and swept back. He's trim and handsome. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to even see that that was Antonin Scalia. But there was no college or university in America that would have should have turned him down. And in the secret oral history that I mentioned earlier, which he conducted in 1992, unsealed in 2018, he described his bitter disappointment at being turned down by Princeton and the sense he got when he interviewed with the Princeton alumni um, that they took one look at him and determined that he was not the Princeton sort. And when his interviewer asked, well, what did that mean, not the Princeton sort? He said, not waspy enough, that I didn't belong to the right clubs. Now, Scalia loathed identity politics he loved ethnic ethnicity and he loved ethnic jokes um and, but he was not a fan of uh, uh, of identity politics or its legal spawn and he was he would never have portrayed himself for even a moment as a victim in life right but my research found that um these instances of anti-italian prejudice against him occurred a lot more frequently throughout his rise to greatness than he ever cared to admit or discuss uh, to the point where even after he had served as assistant attorney general at the Department of Justice, uh, one of his former colleagues from the Harvard Law Review greeted him in front of a large number of their colleagues at a legal conference uh, by yelling at him from an escalator, hey, fat Tony. Um, yeah. He was routinely described in newspaper reports when he served in the executive branch as swarthy. Uh, David Broder, the celebrated Washington Post columnist, uh, noted the, made a reference to Antonin Scalia and said, with a name like that, he must have come out of the music department. Uh, and on one occasion, at a picnic at the Department of Justice for officials and their families, Scalia brought bocce balls. And when Herb Peterson, who was the assistant attorney general in charge of the criminal division, a, a frequent uh, participant in the Nixon tapes, um, made a quizzical look at the bocce balls, and Scalia said to him, you do know what bocce balls don't you, are, don't you, Herb? Um, uh, Peterson replied to him, uh, well, you know, remember that I run the criminal division. So anytime we see men playing with bocce balls, 
we usually call for an FBI camera and microphone team. And so here for, a, you know, a kind of anodyne quip about the bocce balls, Scalia was rewarded with a zap between the eyes, linking him to Costa Nostra. Uh, so this happened a lot more frequently than he cared to admit. Um, but again, he kept a, uh, his equanimity about it. And he remembered that his wife, Maureen McCarthy Scalia, who uh, grew up in the Boston area, uh, in her own childhood, saw signs uh, in public spaces reading Irish need not apply. Um, he did find the one time it helped him was at his confirmation hearing, where the lawmakers fell all over themselves to to mention uh, because Scalia would be the first Italian-American to sit on the Supreme Court, uh, their distant cousins or relatives who were Italian. Um, and, um, and, and Scalia said a couple of years after that confirmation hearing, being an ethnic is of not much use. Unless, you know, you might be going through a, com- a Supreme Court confirmation. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, like, he doesn't uh, doesn't get into Princeton, ends up, settles on Georgetown, but he ends up uh, attending Harvard Law um, after that. And it's important, um, one, or most important, because that's where, you know, he meets his eventual wife, Maureen. Um, but is Harvard Law, uh, is this where his originalism uh, for lack of, of a better word, originates? Hmm. Well, um, not quite. Um, there, he was exposed to teaching at Harvard Law 1957 to 1960 uh, with something called neutral principles, a concept of neutral principles that judges should neutrally apply uh, whatever principles they see fit to apply uh, to their decisions and cases, and that if you were honest about that, that you as a judge would sometimes uh, hand down opinions whose outcomes you personally didn't agree with. And that did stay with Scalia. But um, even as late as the 1970s, I interviewed people who who served subordinate to Scalia at the Department of Justice and who told me at that time he was not uh, famous for what he would later become famous for. Uh, He was not pressing upon them um, any imperative that they observe originalism or textualism in their in their case filings or pleadings before the courts. Um, This seems to me, Tim, a good time for us to explain to our listeners uh, why Scalia is not just one of the most important Supreme Court justices of recent times, but why Antonin Scalia is one of the most important Americans of the last hundred years. And this has to do with his actual legacy. And of course, we'll get into this in greater depth in volume two, which will cover his Supreme Court years. But um, Scalia changed the way that lawyers argue the law before judges and justices, Uh, the way that judges and justices craft their opinions and their rulings about the law, and even the way that lawmakers craft laws. And of course, this touches the life of every single American in a a myriad of ways today. Uh, When Scalia came along first as a judge on the appellate court, uh, the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, uh, where he served from 1982 to 86, Uh, prior to President Reagan elevating him to the Supreme Court. And at that time, on that court, we should point out, Scalia served as part of a murderer's row of judicial legal talent that included Judge Robert Bork, Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Judge Scalia, Judge Mm -hmm. Kenneth Starr, Judge Lawrence Silberman, uh, and others. Um, When he came along on the federal bench, there prevailed in the law a liberal notion called the living constitution. This was the idea that the meaning of the Constitution or any particular statute passed since then should not be held to what it was at the time it was enacted. It should breathe and expand like a living organism to account for phenomena 
that the founding fathers could never have envisioned, such as nuclear weapons or the Internet. And in order to breathe this expanded life and, and expanded meaning into these, these existing legal documents, uh, liberal judges would look beyond the text of them and, and look to what they call the legislative intent behind them. What was said in all of those House and Senate floor debates? What was printed in all of those committee reports that were generated as a given measure snaked its way through the process? Scalia stood athwart all of that. His idea was that when judges are engaged in their central business, which is interpreting the meaning of the Constitution or a given statute, uh, they should not look to legislative intent because, as Scalia put it, whoever voted on a floor debate, who voted on a committee report? Nobody. They mm-hmm. voted on the text of a given law, and a president signed a given text into law. And Scalia's idea was that judges and justices, when interpreting the meaning of the Constitution or a statute, should adhere to the original meaning of that document, the meaning it was widely understood to have at the time it was enacted, um, and how best to discern or divine the original meaning, just look at the text. Right. The legislative intent was the text that they adopted. And if you grafted your own expanded meaning onto the Constitution or a given statute, uh, you were basically grafting your own policy preferences onto that existing provision or statute. And from Scalia's point of view, that was sort of like traveling back in time and robbing a previous generation of their democratic self-governance. Uh, suppose that you very much appreciated the law that President Biden signed last year protecting same-sex marriages. Uh, how would you feel if 10 years from now or 50 years from now or 200 years from now, an unelected judge or justice could come along and say, well, actually the meaning of that statute should be expanded or changed or modified to suit modern phenomena or modern sensibilities. And this was radical in its time. These concepts of originalism and textualism as what I call the metal detector that you would use to find original meaning. But by the time he died, no less a figure than Justice Elena Kagan, an appointee of Barack Obama, proclaimed that uh, as a result, in effect, of Scalia's revolution and this extraordinary impact that he had on lawyers and the way that uh, the law is viewed and crafted and decided. Uh, as she put it, quote, we are all originalists now. Yeah. Didn't she write the introduction to one of the collections of his dissents or uh, writings that came out a couple of years ago? She did. And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, while Scalia's friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg is widely and justly celebrated, he also had a great relationship with Justice Kagan taught her how to go hunting, um, and in fact lobbied quietly for both Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Elena Kagan to be appointed, mm-hmm. and did so successfully with yeah. Democratic administration. Yeah, Kagan always seemed like a, a fun lady, you know, like a good hang. Like, you know, she would be fun to hang out with. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's fantastic. Oh, we're running out of time already, unfortunately. Uh, see, there's lots of stuff we want to talk about, but um, I'll come back. Yes, yes, I, I know. But one thing uh, I want to talk about his before we go, his relationship uh, with his law clerks. Um, mm. How uh, how did he treat them? What was their uh, back and forth like? Their uh, how did his clerks feel about him? And was his relationship with his clerks was that something that was sort of uh, unique to him? Uh, as a justice, or, or at least recently as a justice? My experience is that um, most uh, clerks for Supreme Court justices, and even for 
uh, judges on the federal bench below the Supreme Court tend to speak uh, after that experience with great admiration for whichever judge or justice they served. Uh, so Scalia wouldn't be unique in that respect. Mm-hmm. I would say, though, that his clerks, and I interviewed over a dozen of them, and I needed to be, to, to pun intended, to, to be judicious about this because uh, there's over a hundred of them. And if each one of them told me one or two great stories about Justice Scalia, I wouldn't be able to include them all. Uh, so I focused on um, different categories of clerks to Scalia. Um, the elite ring of, of his clerks would be those who served with him both on the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court. And indeed, uh, one of them became a federal judge in his own right. Uh, and he actually boxed up Scalia's belongings from the Court of Appeals and drove with him over to the Supreme <laughs> Court. Um, there are those who served for both him and Robert Bork, let's say, which, which is an unusual distinction. Um, so I tried to go for some of those categories as well as some from his earliest period on the court, some from his last term on the court, uh, and those who served uh, uh, with him uh, on ter- during terms where there were momentous cases heard, let's say. Um, and Scalia was beloved by his clerks, I would say. He uh, had mentoring relationships with them that lasted well beyond their clerkships. Of course, uh, one of his clerks went on to become a Supreme Court justice in her own right, Amy Coney Barrett, who serves presently. Um, He was unusual in this respect, two respects. One is that Scalia uh, always dived into and consumed completely all the briefs submitted by both parties to a case that would come before him on his own. Even the amicus briefs, which are briefs filed by people who are not parties to the legal dispute, but they call them amicus Friends briefs, of the court, friend, yeah. of the, friend of the court yeah. brief, he would read those too. And so he did not need his clerks to prepare for him as clerks ordinarily do for judges and justices, what are called bench memos, where they summarize the issues in the case and help him prepare for the oral arguments. Scalia didn't need bench memos because he read every single brief himself. Uh, there are some rare instances I found in, in the archives of bench memos being prepared for him and circulated with other judges and justices, but he was unusual in that respect. Another respect in which he was unusual is that if he got three to four clerks per term, um, he would always hire one of those clerks uh, at, who would be a liberal, who could um, spar with him, albeit respectfully, about the law. Uh, and about these these uh, approaches to the law uh, of originalism and textualism. And these were called counter clerks. And that was a very unusual practice. Most of the judges and justices hire clerks who think about the law more or less as they do. Um, And so that would mean hiring only conservatives in Scalia's case. But he uh, starting about two or three years into his Supreme Court term or tenure, he started to hire one clerk per term amongst the three or four who would be a liberal who could challenge him in a respectful way because he loved nothing more than um, his Catholic faith, his wife and children, nothing more than arguing about the law. Mm-hmm. And the, the chief role that his clerks would play for him would be to spar about cases before um, he heard oral arguments as a sitting Supreme Court justice. And this was a thrilling and, and sometimes frightening experience for those clerks. Um, but he called them the clerk erati. And uh, I'm grateful to all of the ones who cooperated in my project. I've had some of them whom I interviewed already contact me to say that they've read this first book um, and learned so much about their old boss. 
but they will feature more prominently, of course, in the in the second volume, which treats his Supreme Court tenure. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, well, a lot of the questions I had for you, I guess, can can wait a couple of years until you finish that one. But uh, so I'll uh, come back for a volume two just yeah. on this. Come on, just on this book. <laughs> yeah, all right. OK, um, sounds good. Uh, but one thing I always ask everybody, uh, before we go, um, basically the standard exit question is what would you like the audience to get out of this book or, you know, what's the one thing you'd want them to take away from having read it? Well, um, that's a great question. Um, I would want them to. Uh, take away from Scalia rise to greatness um, a sense of Scalia's greatness why he was so important how he touches every American life still today um, and how uh, central in his rise were um, what I would call the twin booster rockets of his Catholic faith and his wife Maureen Scalia the hero of this book um, her contributions her sacrifices uh, were extraordinary and every American who benefits from Scalia's towering legacy owes an extraordinary debt to Maureen Scalia as well. All right. Very well put. Um, well, uh, before we go, do you have anything uh, else you want to uh, plug and get out there? Any appearances? Any, uh, any you know, well, social media, anything like that you want people to know you're about? You're kind to ask. I just want to encourage everyone to tune in every day to Newsmax, where you can see me covering the White House as the chief White House correspondent. And you can learn more about Scalia Rise to Greatness and my previous books and my articles and everything else I do on my Twitter feed, at James Rosen TV. All right, great. Okay, well, again, the book is Scalia Rise to Greatness, 1936-1986, the first volume of a two-volume biography of Antonin Scalia, uh, the great Supreme Court Justice. It's a... Uh, um, it's a fascinating book about a very, very interesting individual, uh, very well written. Um, you know, you received a lot of praise for your book on uh, John Mitchell uh, back, I don't know how many years ago that was, 15 years ago yes. or so, something like that. And that was a great book, too. And this is uh, every bit as good uh, of a work of biography, of a work of history as that book was as well. Well, and, that's very kind. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, no problem. And uh, highly, highly recommend it to uh, everybody out there. Make sure you go out and uh, pick up a copy. Again, uh, the book is Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, and the author, uh, Mr. James Rosen. So, uh, Mr. Rosen, thank you again very, very much for coming on the podcast. And thank you and thank you for, uh, you know, taking all this time out of your life to uh, write this book and uh, uh, sharing it with uh, everybody and, and letting us enjoy it. We, uh, we all appreciate it. Well, thank you, Tim. You're very kind to me, and I can't wait to mention you to Chris Hillman. <laughs> All right, great. Well, uh, tell him it's been it was I, think, I guess it was probably a couple of years ago that we did the interview, maybe a year and a half ago, something like that. So uh, I don't know if he'll remember, but uh, if, if he does, tell him uh, tell him and uh, and Connie as well that uh, uh, I said hello and hope all sure is well. Sure will. <laughs> All right. Well, I think thank you, Tim. No problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us, leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you uh, have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, uh, or if you have any uh, questions about the podcast or comments or anything like that, you can reach me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. 
And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can uh, just go to heartland.org. And we also have our own uh, Twitter account for the for the podcast. You can reach us there too. You know, if you have any questions, comments, all that sort of stuff, or just you know want more information. Um, our Twitter handle is at illbooks at i l l books. So uh, make sure you check that out. Uh, you know, send us a DM, give us a follow, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so make sure you do that. And that's pretty much it. So uh, thank you for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.